Psalm 33 tonight, and uh, as Matt said, we're talking about this concept of, of mission tonight. And uh, one, one of my favorite things as we've been just kind of walking through the Psalms, not picking out random selected ones, but just going, all right, this is the first week we're gathering Psalm 1, next week Psalm 2, and this kind of stuff is, um, is, is hopefully you've experienced this a little bit of seeing how those themes, especially if you've um, prayed through, walked through, thought through the Psalm before coming in. Um, the Psalms apply to our lives. The Psalms teach us can, can teach us how to pray if we pay attention to them. And certainly there's some weeks that the Psalms are like, oh yeah, that's really easy and really applicable. And there's other Psalms that are like, that was a little harder for me to understand and wrap my mind around. And that's true of the Psalms. Um, but today's Psalm, the 33rd Psalm that we're walking through, uh, just fits this theme that we're talking about mission so perfectly. And so we're kind of wrapping our our teaching time around that psalm. It's actually, as I was sitting here singing, the psalm that is uh, pasted on the on, on Fortress's wall over here above the instrument. So sing to God a new song, play skillfully, shout for joy. So man, if only we had access to those instruments, that could have been crazy a little bit ago, but we don't because they're fortresses and not ours. So, um, but, but here's what we have done is we've spent this summer, if you've been here most Sundays, and, and many of you have, we spent this summer walking through just kind of a high, big-picture overview of the Bible, um, calling it the truest story in the world. So we've been doing it on Sunday evenings. At the same time, many of you have been participating in summer book clubs, which we said we wanted to do in part to kind of let different folks from DNA groups get to know each other, and in part we wanted to, to choose books that dealt with different issues in our culture. And so racial injustice and folks who are deconstructing their faith and art and faith and God's heart for sinners and suffering and, and, and a few other books like that. And so we're wrapping up this summer um, and wrapping up those themes, the biggest story in the world, truest story in the world, and those cultural engaging books. We're, we're wrapping up the summer in two different ways this week and next. And so as Matt mentioned, Next week, we're going to do a potluck at Newby Park and just bring a dish, yes, but also um, we'd love for folks to share a little bit of, of, of what God's done in your life. How has God formed you, shared, taught you something new, invited you into something new, um, impacted you, given you a maybe new or expanded view of something, either from walking through the scriptures in that way or from the book club that you were in? Uh, don't force something, make something up. Not everybody's going to have to share, but we'd love for you to share stories and then uh, bring prayers that you have as well. So we're going to spend some time sharing stories and prayers during our potluck next week. That's one of the ways we're wrapping up summer. But today, the second way we're wrapping up summer is we're kind of zooming back in on our place in the truest story in the world. Um, so if you'll put the next slide up, if you remember this, we've, we've seen this slide a few times. So the story of the world, uh, truest story of the world, the way the Bible unfolds is that God created everything that did not last very long. We rebelled. We tried to make ourselves the main character. And yet God carried his mission and his promise forward through what we call the Old Testament. And then his mission in one sense culminated and he sent Jesus as the long awaited Messiah, the, the act, the fourth act we call redemption. Um, and then God carries his mission forward and is carrying his mission forward, continuing to fulfill his promise through, through us, through the New Testament, and through followers of Jesus around the world, through history, through the church, of which we are one little piece of. Um, and and we're, we're looking forward to the day when all of history and everything is restored to the way that it once was. That's, that's where we've been the last few weeks. But, and, and maybe you've thought this, and maybe you've, maybe you've sensed this or heard this, when, when many people think of this story, if you were to ask, where are we in the story, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Anyone? 
church. That is where we are in the story. Did anyone else have any, any other part of the story come to mind? A lot of times when we think about this story, we put ourselves under the rebellion part. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. A lot of us think of ourselves in this fallen state knowing we need to be redeemed. Does that resonate with anyone? Um, may, may, maybe in, in your vein of theology, vein of Christianity, that's, that's kind of been put on you, is that, that we are only broken, sinful people needing Jesus. And, and, and hear me, there's a sense to which, yes, that, that is part of our ever, ever going journey. Our, our lifelong journey is to say, yeah, we, we are sinners. We, we do need to be redeemed. But the other side of that is we have been redeemed. God has come and he has taken all of our brokenness and taken all of our sin one time and for all. And so for some of us, we have this undue weight that's put on our shoulders thinking that we have to go back again and again and again and again. Following this storyline, if we consider ourselves under fall, waiting for a redeemer, we put ourselves at the wrong place in the story. The right place in the story is the one that some of you mentioned. We, we are God's church. We exist after redemption. The Messiah, Jesus, has already come and lived and died and rose. He is reigning in part. All sin has been forgiven. We have good news. And so while, yes, consistently we'll have to grow, God will grow us, he will sanctify us for the rest of our life, our role in the truest story in the world is less kind of an inward, individualist, waiting for salvation, kind of staring at our belly button, woe is me. That's not our role. Rather, our role, as Nicole mentioned a few weeks ago, is to display and declare the same salvation that we have already received to the rest of the world. Our, our role is, is carrying out his mission. God is continuing to carry out his mission, and he's largely doing that through us, through his people. God has been on mission since Genesis 3. Since Adam and Eve rebelled against him, he has been pursuing humans saying, no, I am a better God. I am a better king. Come back to me. Since at least Genesis 12, when he called Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you in order to be a blessing and made covenants with him. Since at least Genesis 12, God has involved his people in his mission. And so today we're just going to spend a little bit of time looking at this week's psalm and reflecting on its themes, and then I've asked a few different folks to come share what it looks like for them to display and declare the good news of Jesus in their lives as they live on mission. But, but, but before we jump into that, I want to give you just three reasons that, that we're doing this today. Um, the first is that mission is a vital part of Christian discipleship. And I want to pause and, and, and let you ask, like, do you actually believe that to be true? Because a lot of times when we think of mission, we think over there, or we think of some elite class or some professional person. But, but, but mission is a vital part of Christian discipleship for all of us. It's a hard part of Christian discipleship for many of us. There are some who are gifted as evangelists, and if that's you, help the rest of us. Um, but, but all of us are called and charged to make disciples. It's not secondary. It's not optional. It's, mission is as much a part of our faith as reading the Bible or gathering as a church might be. That's the first reason we wanted to, to kind of bring it up as we walk into the fall. The second reason is that mission is always hard for many of us, but it's especially been hard this past year. I don't know if you've felt this. Um, 
we sent out a, a, a survey. Some, many, most of you filled out this, this survey over the summer about DNA groups and also just asking where folks are serving in mission. And the number of responses that said, well, I was serving with this organization before COVID, but now I haven't been able to get back into the school. I haven't been able to, to continue on with the programs. I haven't been able to serve in these ways. Um, for many of us, there feels like there was a momentum that maybe was just building and we we're starting to see some fruit and that slowed or stopped. And so we want to, to go into this fall helping us as a church family kind of learn to reflex those muscles, if I can put it like that, the, the, the muscles that have atrophied, the focus that has gone a little askew. Some DNAs are, are praying about how they're going to be serving together and pursuing mission together. But all DNAs, if they're truly missional DNAs, we're going to ask you to at least be supporting one another's mission fields. And so as we enter this fall, we just want to start the conversation of reprioritizing the missional side of our missional DNAs by reminding us that, that this is part of, of who we are in this truest story in the world. And then the third reason that we're talking about this today, and it's related to the second, is that it's part of our role as a church family to equip one another to display and declare the gospel in everyday life. Um, if, if I can be honest, I'm, I'm really proud of, of our little church family. Lydia, go ahead and go to the next slide for me. In the survey, we, we got to see like there's a lot of folks engaged in a lot of different efforts to display and declare the gospel. Here's just a few of them. Gladney Center for Adoption, which we'll hear about in a minute. Fortress, where we are right now. Meals on Wheels, the Rise House, the Net, Taste Project, Dash, Muslim Peoples in Fort Worth, Read to Win, the Wellman Project, and there's a whole lot of surveys that talked about neighbors and coworkers and family members and schools, less of a little like an organizational label, just more of kind of everyday relationship. Even during this kind of COVID season when mission's been hard, y'all have been intentional, and we can celebrate this. God has, has led us to be intentional about serving about displaying the gospel, about declaring the gospel, about living on his mission in local ways. And then at the same time, there's a lot of involvement in global areas as well. So even more, Search Homeless, I, I always mispronounce it, Seco. I know, Seco. Advocates for Community Transformation, Bible Project, Benton Farms, Opal Leaf Farms, Mockingbird Crew, which is the new cool name for Campus Crusade for Christ, um, Compassion International, Help One Now, Able Speaks, Launch Global, Wycliffe, Redemptive Love, Child Care Worldwide, International Justice Mission, Water is Basic, and then again, a lot of, well, we support this family or this individual missionary who's somewhere in the world. We support this church or this plant. We support this campus minister. And, and so again, like, there's a lot of there's a lot of mission, a lot of organizations, a lot of serving that folks are involved with. There's a lot of relationships with non-believers. But but here's what I want to say, and we'll, we'll come back to this throughout the fall. It's easier to to be supportive and to give money and to pray than to give time. Sometimes we can acknowledge that it's not a, it's not like a guilt trip. It just is. It's easier to give money. It's easier to give prayer than it is to give time. It's easier to give all three of those things than it is to give our actual words to share the good news of Jesus. Is that fair? It's easier to give time. It's easier to give prayer. It's easier to give some effort even. It's easier to display the gospel, if I can say it like that, than it is to declare the gospel for many of us. It's easier to simply have relationships with folks who don't know Jesus than it is to actually display and declare the good news of Jesus into those relationships. Again, is that fair? It's easier to know and, and be with and spend time with. It's harder to make that jump into actually declaring the gospel. 
And so part of the church's job, part of what we exist for, is to equip each other for the work of ministry, and that includes the work of mission. And so all, all we're doing today is, is to, to give a little bit of a first step to help us take some risks to think and speak winsomely and, and saltily uh, and to pray and live out this aspect of Christian discipleship that is so vital just like all the rest. And so Psalm 33 is going to help us guide into that, and then we'll have some folks come up here and share what it looks like to live out that role in God's story. So Psalm 33 is, as the multicolored cartoon letters on the wall say, it's a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of praise for God and a psalm of praise for his word. And it's also a prayer for the world around us. And so the psalmist shows God's heart for people and shows people's need for God. So I'm going to read Psalm 33, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to make a few comments, but largely we're going to read the psalm and reflect for a minute. Shout for joy in the Lord, all you righteous. Praise befits the upright, or praise is worthy of the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him on the harp and the ten strings. Here's the verse on the wall. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So this is an invitation to us who do know that we're created by God for his purpose and his glory to remember that God is the source of our joy and to celebrate the grace that he shows us over and over and over again. And so I want us to pause for just a minute. In the next verses, the psalmist is going to give us a few reasons why we celebrate God and why we find joy in him. But, but let's get ahead of the psalmist. At least in your own head, ideally out loud if you'd be so bold, what, what's something for which you can praise God? What's a specific way that he has reminded you that he's the source of joy? What's a specific way that he's shown you his grace recently? What can we praise God for this evening? Answering prayers. Praise you, God. You are the one who answers prayers. What else? Help. Yeah, you're our helper. He's, he promises to be our helper. and then Health. Also health. There you go. Like you had to pull down your mask to say health. There's irony in that. <laughs> health and, and help. What else? Yeah, God, you're present with us, even when we sometimes don't believe it. What else can we praise God for? Yeah, yeah, thank you, God, for your gift of salvation, that we are not in this fall part of the story, just waiting and hoping that one day you might actually see fit to forgive us. You've done that, God. One more, anything else? Yeah, that anyone can receive that gift. And his desire is for everyone to receive that gift. For saving us, absolutely. And on and on we go, there's so much to praise God for. And then in verse 4, the psalmist gives us another reason, in addition to those we just said, for celebrating God. And that is that his word and his work are good. God's work and God's word are good. Starting in verse 4, the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. God loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all the host of the heavens, he gathers the waters of the sea into a heap, and he puts the deep in storehouses. 
let all the earth fear the Lord, is the psalmist's conclusion to this part. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. What sticks out? What words stick out to you in that? Awe and fear stood out to me. Good for you. I'll just mention this. As we think about mission, as we think about our role in, in God's story, if God loves righteousness and justice, which is what the verses say, and, and, and if he fills the earth with his love, then if we are made in his image to display and declare him to the broken and hurting world around us, guess what things he would invite us to give ourselves to and participate in and display in this broken and hurting world? in part righteousness and justice and love in the same way that he fills the earth. And if the world around us has lost the, the fear and awe of God, which it has, we all have in some ways, lost the fear and awe of God, then, then guess what part of our declaration gets to be? It's, it's to, to help folks refine and rediscover a right awe and yeah, even a healthy fear of the one who can put all the oceans into a heap and who created everything. God's word and God's work are good. Verse 10 then reminds us of yet another reason we get to display and declare his good news. Not only will his will be accomplished in his people, but his work and his will exist for every nation. And nation just for the record, I think Laura's going to mention this maybe in a little bit again. No, she's not. I mean, you need to know this. Nation, when we hear it, we automatically think of like geopolitical boundary lines. It's not, those didn't exist when the Bible was written. And so what God's saying when he says every nation, he's talking about every people group. It's ethne. It's, it's, it's all peoples, which changes how we think about it. One day God will fully reign over the world again as he has intended. Look, look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations or all the people groups. He brings the wisdom of the people groups to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So one author talking about verse 12 says that God deserves the love of all mankind. Think about that for a minute. God deserves the love of all mankind. We saw this throughout the truest story in the world. You will be my people. I, I, I will be your God. Now, at the time, God's invitation was especially to Israel, but because of Jesus, because of the redemption that we celebrated a few weeks ago, God is not just the God of one nation or people group. The entire world is his. Like Ben said, the entire world is invited, and we are sent to all people. Matthew 28 is a fairly well-known verse among followers of Jesus. But just so I don't misquote it, I'm going to turn there. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations, which is to say all peoples. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. But do we go alone? No. Behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 echoes this. He says, you will be my witnesses. Let me back up because it's important. After, after you've received the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of all the earth. To be clear, there's not one human other than Jesus. There's not one human today who's going to display and declare God to the whole world. But if we think about this, church, if, if we each were intentional, and if we each followed his spirit who's with us into playing our role with our own neighbors, our own circles, our networks, our needs, or if we, we, we were intentional in, in the relationships that we have and the passions and the organizations, if we each displayed the good news of Jesus and his better kingdom in our own little circles, then wouldn't we be well on our way to seeing every tribe and tongue and nation or people group preached? That's some of what we'll hear in just a minute as folks come up and share. But before they do, this almost reminds us that everyone in the world is seeking some definition of salvation. Salvation from something. Salvation that, that they define as being better than what their situation is. But outside of God, the creator, the king, the, the giver of true salvation, we know that every other definition of salvation in the world is false. Look at verse 13. And so the Lord looks down from the heavens and he sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He, hear the poignantness of this phrase, he who fashioned the hearts of all of them and observes their good deeds. The king is not saved by his great army, even though that's where we put hope and trust. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength, even though that's where we put hope and trust. A war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. So again, I want you to pause for just a moment. Think of someone or a people group, a neighborhood, network, need, circle, relationship, neighbor, whatever it may be. Where do they put their hope? Don't answer this one out loud. Just If somebody comes to mind, where, where, where are they finding hope? What are they trusting? How does that hope fade? And how is Jesus better good news, better true hope? Because there's a need, great need, around us. We have a desperate world seeking salvation, unaware of or ignoring or rejecting the true source of hope. And guess what? That's where we get to come in. The church is God's people who do know the true source of salvation. And so as the church, again, our role in this truest story is to display and declare the gospel to a needy world. And through history and in every culture, that's been done in a dozen, hundred different ways. And so a few folks for the rest of our time are going to share what it looks like in their lives. And we didn't ask them because they are 
the, the, they're doing it right. They're doing it the only right way. They're not the, the, the elite crew, this kind of stuff. There's simply just a diversity of folks displaying and declaring the gospel in different areas across our city. And so, yes, if God sparks something specific tonight, feel free to talk to them about joining the specific way that they're displaying and declaring the gospel. But I want you to hear our goal for tonight is to spark our imaginations, is to see if God flips a switch in us to, to, to see some ways that, that we get to display and declare the gospel in their examples, and then to ask God what it would look like for us to do the same and what he might be calling us to. So I think Byford's are up first and get to hear a few ways that this can look. Hi, um, I'm Emily. This is Luke. Um, forgive our dependence on notes because we will just babble. Um, if we don't use them, I guess we can kind of talk about this forever. Um, but so we both are primarily serving within um, the adoption community. For us, it happens to be our full-time jobs. Um, and we'll kind of talk about how we got there. But um, in our work, we are serving kind of all three. If, I don't know if you can see my necklace very well. It's this kind of idyllic picture of adoption. So it's a triangle, right? Just a normal triangle surrounded by a heart. So the idea is that within adoption, there's three components of the adoption triad, the, the adoptive parents, the adopted child, and the birth parents. And so then there's a heart around it talking about kind of the love that binds them all together. So it's, it's very idyllic, but that is truly who we are seeking to serve, are all three members of, of that triad. And so I right now am I'm providing support and advocacy primarily for parents hoping to adopt. Uh, and I work uh, primarily with uh, parents who have adopted, families who have been through the adoption process and are wanting to um, help other families or support other families uh, or continue that mission um, through either building community among those families or just, you know, purely philanthropically. All right. Okay. Um, so... A little bit about how we got there for myself um, I was working with expectant moms whose lives kind of looked more like mine I was a doula a childbirth educator trying to grow a business and an opportunity arose for me to work very part-time evenings and weekends on-call shifts going and helping women that lived in the dormant Gladney who were planning adoption um, and it was taking them to their doctor appointments being with them when they had their babies um, because oftentimes those women didn't have a support person that could join them for that. And through that, just the experience of being able to encourage and empower a woman, regardless of her decision, right? Because oftentimes, you know, a, a woman doesn't commit to an adoption plan until after the child is born. And so, you know, I would get to just be there for her regardless of what her decision was. I fell in love with the mission, fell in love with birth moms in particular, and just kind of kept leaning in and over five years have just kind of found my way into my current role. Um, I got there a little differently. She got there before I did. Uh, I've been working in this field for three years now. Um, I, about three years ago, lost my job and uh, was looking to make a career change, going from marketing to something that felt a little better um, to do day in, day out. Like there was uh, something, some way the world would be better by the end of my day than when I started. Um, and so fortunately, uh, Emily knew that there was a job opening in, uh, in donor relations uh, at, uh, at the agency, and they, uh, they hired me. So um, we, we fortunately get to do things that we love to do and to work in a mission that we love to work in 
and also make a living off of it. Um, so that's uh, that's. Um, I was coming out of. I was trying to deal with at the time, trying to. Um, I had wanted to go into vocational ministry, full-time ministry, and it just wasn't happening. And it seemed like God kept closing those doors. Uh, and so, you know, for me, this was this was the way. This was God saying, "This is the direction I want you to take." It's different from what you thought I told you to do, but this is this is where what I've got for you. So, and then just kind of um, taking st- taking a step back and kind of seeing how this applies to mission. Um, the reality is that adoption, um, care for children who are vulnerable, um, care for women who are experiencing a pregnancy or parenting, and it is it is not a good plan for them, has always ex- ex- existed. Um, the difference is how societies or cultures have handled that, how compassionate or ethical that treatment has been. Um, and so when we look at the gospel um, and ask how we should handle adoption or orphan care or any of these topics, while Jesus never addresses it directly, um, we think that we see that in his treatment of the woman at the well, right? We see that he treats her lovingly. He treats her with care. He um, you know, kind of looks past her situation and sees the person and, and attempts to, to treat her in a way that's dignified. Um, likewise, when um, the disciples are saying, no, don't let the kids come, Jesus is saying, no, let the children come to me. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Um, and so we see deep compassion um, for the humanity of a person and for their well-being in the way that Jesus treated those. And I, I believe that's why James wrote specifically the way he did, uh, that as Christians, it's our job to support and to serve um, to uh, widows and orphans. And if you, if you look at, at what widows would have looked like in that day and age and you, you compare that to, to what we see now, really, you know, mothers facing an unplanned pregnancy uh, is probably the closest thing in context that we have to what James would have been talking about then. Um, so... You know, if Jesus came today um, and and said uh, that I want you to help with children who need families and women who need adoption, you know, what kind of what would that look like, just based on the gospel, based on scripture? Um, so, we believe that uh, first of all, Christ would not ask any of us to be anyone else's savior. We believe that that uh, is a is a role that only He can play in our lives and anybody's lives, and so. To walk into this with uh, with kind of a savior mentality is a is a bad uh, bad direction to go. Um, so, you know, he he would ask each and every one of us uh, to be ready to be a part of his redemptive story, to be a part of the redemptive story that he plays out in the lives of of everyone around us, and in this specifically plays out in the lives of, of uh, children who are waiting uh, for forever families in foster care, who are waiting uh, in orphanages. Uh, around the, the world who are, are, you know, unwed or unwed mothers, that's not the right term, I'm sorry, um, expectant mothers uh, facing an unplanned pregnancy um, who, um, you know, need the option of adoption. Um, we believe that these these are the redemptive stories that he would want us to join into and to, to be a part of. Um, so, um, you know, for, for some, if we're thinking about this mission, uh, for some people, and maybe for some of you in the room, um, that might, uh, Jesus might be asking you to step up to take a child into your home and invite them to be a part of your family. Um, and that is a huge decision. And that is not a decision to take uh, lightly. Um, I think with good intentions, the church has had this tendency to make uh, kind of light of this decision. 
saying things like, if every Christian in the city adopted a child from foster care, we could end foster care, uh, which would be true for that one day that everybody adopted a child. Then the next day, uh, there would be more kids in foster care because it's not, there's a, there's a bigger issue out there. There's a bigger, sin still exists, and there's still broken families, and there's still kids that need, uh, need care. Um, but uh, So it's true to a point that, that we could all do that, um, but uh, it takes, you know, regardless of, of when a child is adopted, whether, whether we're talking about a child being adopted as an infant or, or, or adopting a child out of foster care who's waiting, who's seen trauma and, and all sorts of things, um, you know, it takes, it takes more than just love and desire to do that. Um, love is absolutely necessary, but it's just the starting point. Uh, if you think about John 3.16, um, you know, John didn't stop at, for God so loved the world. It's for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's action that is following that love. And so in order to, 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 to take that key task, to take a child into your home, you have to be willing to, to not just love, but to take the, the next action, the next steps, the training, the learning, the, the extra parenting that it's going to take uh, to do that. Um, but um, while that is a huge decision to make, there's other ways that people can be involved in this mission and, and help. Yeah, I think um, letting us speak today, I really appreciate the opportunity to just to share and just to to bring you information about this. And so we did put some handouts on the table. Um, I would draw your attention. Um, one thing that I would challenge you to engage with is the positive adoption language handout, um, talking about adoption in a way that is dignified for the birth family, that is dignified for the adopted child. Um, and so engaging with that vocabulary and maybe um, challenging yourself to learn more about that. Um, another piece that I put on the table that is really important to me are the uh, um, the birth mom testimonials. There are two, so if you're, I put kind of alternated, so there, if you have Emma's story, look for Mathani's story on a different table or vice versa. These are real women who have planned adoption and um, this is just their story. Every birth mom story is really different, but I think listening to some of the vulnerabilities that maybe led to the need to place a child for adoption can help us see needs in our communities. Um, and then there's also some information about um, kind of waiting children's statistics. And then um, in particular at Gladney, we have a home where we house teenage girls who are in the foster care system for whom the hopes is adoption. Um, and so there's a little postcard with information about all of that, and I am rambling. Um, and then in addition to Gladney, we are not the only ones doing in this, this in the community, and we don't do this alone. So there are other agencies to partner with, um, and so I would encourage you, if you feel a call to this, um, even beyond Gladney, look at um, who is serving children well, who is serving expectant moms well. So whether that is a pregnancy center or a foster care agency, um, and I would, you know, I would love to be a resource for that if, you know, if, if you feel that call. Um, but, sorry, I lost my, okay. <laughs> um, there's also business cards for Luke and me on the table if you have questions or want to engage so that we can connect you with resources. Um, and so, you know, we, we've talked a lot about a lot of different things, and, and there is a, we could talk forever about this, and there's a, there's a difference between um, infant adoption and adopting out of foster care or being a foster parent, something kind of totally different, um, and it's all very much needed. And so um, if any of this, you know, rings true for you or you want to know more, like, I, like Emily said, our cards are on the table. 
you've got our email addresses or phone numbers, we'd be happy to talk to you and direct you and, and all that sort of thing any of this that you need. Um, but you know, at, at, at the end, um, you know, maybe, maybe you're thinking through this and, and maybe you're just the type of person who is meant to give their resources. And, and Ben talked about that earlier. And, and, uh, and uh, I, I just want to say anybody who stands up here and talks to you tonight about the mission and about particular organizations um, is well aware that it takes money to make those missions happen, whether it's, uh, whether it's an adoption agency or whether it's, it's this place uh, or whether it's the, the church for that matter. Uh, it all takes financing and funding. Um, and so uh, I'm not going to ask you for money tonight, although that is kind of my job in other situations. Um, but uh, I, I just don't want you to underestimate or look down on a financial gift to any organization to help with a mission. Um, it's definitely not a less than uh, kind of thing. Um, so like I said, Emily and I could talk forever about this, uh, and we've probably already gone over our five minutes. Um, but uh, feel free to go through uh, what's on your table and to uh, um, feel free to, to call us or email us. We'd be happy to talk to you over the phone. Uh, email conversation, or even if you you know want to go grab uh, a meal or something and talk through this. So thank you guys. Howdy, my name is Brent. I'm uh, on the board of uh, Fortress, uh, where you are currently sitting. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about Fortress. I'll try and go quick, just because we had a whole big presentation about Fortress a few weeks ago. And all that still rings true. Uh, I, I think the, the neatest thing about Fortress and the starting point is its mission, which is building bridges from poverty to promise. So it's not about an overnight fix. It's not about a snap of the fingers and, and everything's going to be okay. You know, this is an organization that's dedicated to uh, serving the historic South Side, and in particular Van Zant Gwyn Elementary and the families uh, connected to it. To, expanded slightly because of some of the after-school care and preschool they do, but that's that was the, the, the foundational focus. And Van Zant Gwyn is one of the lowest performing elementary schools, and what really uh, connected me and, and made the mission of Fortress resonate with me was the commitment to literacy and uh, the commitment to trying to helping get students on uh, reading level by third grade. We uh, So, um, and that's Literacy has always been a big thing for me. I grew up the son of a of a bookstore owner, so uh, it's kind of where I have to have to focus. But uh, Fortress has been a chance for me to support one that fantastic goal, but also to see the many branches that the phenomenal teachers and staff and directors and board for this organization do. Every time I come up here to help with something or check in on somebody there's something new popping up. There's a, there's the, the, the food pantry thing that was brand new. There's uh, they ran a thing, helping parents figure out how to get vaccinated for COVID. Uh, they've uh, they're constantly looking at expanding parent classes. Um, uh, we, we have the opportunity uh, to, to begin expanding our preschool um, uh, long-term, you know, more after-school care, uh, expanding mentor programs, all of those things, and they all are foundationally about that literacy, that getting kids on reading level, but it's so much more than that. It's also serving the parents because, as the mission says, you know, from building that bridge from poverty to promise, it's going to take time. It's going to take step-by-step-by-step step step, uh, hard work each each step of the way. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an attorney during the day, 
so it's what I, I, I enjoy being able to use my skills as a lawyer, my background as that to help Fortress. But what's really neat is if you look at the, 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 the volunteer base here, you have people who are AC repairmen to uh, financial advisors to TCU students to Fortress families themselves. Uh, to my mother-in-law, who ran the kitchen for several days when when their when their main um, uh, uh, kitchen director was out with an injury, so if you have a skill set, they will find a way to put you to use. If you met Stacy, you know that she, that that woman is a is a wild, overly energetic, crazy, creative person, and so. She would love to figure out a way to plug you in. Um, I'm already pushing on Roger to come do some photography stuff with us for a parent class or something like that. So we'd love to we'd love to plug you in there. Uh, two specific um, uh, things I wanted to mention are one that their mentor program they had to kind of curtail it back because of COVID, but they're they're hoping to redevelop that and and, and roll it back out and in particular have people who can share their skills as a part of that. And uh, for example, teaching a, a photography class or something like that. Uh, connected to that is also the parenting classes, which are really fun. Julie and I have done uh, one of those before, and I'm looking at starting in the, kind of in the state planning, tacking on to a financial literacy class that they have. So if there's things that might be stirring in you on that front, uh, that's a great, great way to get involved. And then second, I'm going to tag on to what Luke said, uh, financial requests. Monthly individual donors are huge right now. Uh, a lot of foundations are off cycle because of COVID. They gave a lot more uh, during the peak COVID time, so they're not funding as quickly and on the normal timelines that they have been for the last 5, 10, 20 years. And so that's caused just some delays in grants or um, stuff like that that just aren't coming in as quickly. We hope you know, that we expect that they will at some point, but it's just slow and it's just a different timeline. So uh, the the monthly consistent donors, even if it's five bucks, you know, no matter what you could give, go a long way towards just filling those filling those gaps and and just helping make sure that what Fortress does uh, continues on um, every day. So anyway, that's all I got. Thank you so much, and and we love having. Uh, Fortress loves having the church here, and I love that we get to do this. So, I'm at five minutes exactly. So, again, I'm Bethany, um, and I'm going to talk about our mission to our kids in the room. Hi, kids. Again, um, kids are my favorite topic. Oh, oh, here we go. We have a friend. Um, so, I am on a team that plans our um, children's programs for the church for young kids. So, I work for the one through five age, the preschoolers, the toddlers, um, babies, all those little ones. Um, how, I, how I got into that, uh, I've been a children's librarian for seven years and focused on um, early learning and child development. So that really was the first time that I started learning about kids and how they think. And I started seeing why some programs are effective for kids and some are not effective. And so it really sparked an interest in me. And then when I had my own kids, um, it started applying to faith and to how we talk about God and how the church interacts with kids. And I thought, you know, this applies. Um, and Salt and Light has been really gracious in letting me sort of explore that and, and um, me and the team figure out how do we do this? How do we do, you know, um, church for these little kids and make them feel included and um, really loved uh, at Salt and Light? So when we talk about how to engage and include kids, 
Um, you know, I know we all know not just babysit. How do we include kids in the church? We've really tried to think about their development and the stage they're in. And um, you hear the phrase, you know, uh, children are like sponges. And I think there's some truth to it, but I think that kind of implies that everything that we do and say, it just goes in and it just sticks forever. And that's not really accurate. Really, children are like spiders. Um, they're constantly building a web. Their brains are, especially those first five years, they're making connections. So every interaction, every time we read the Bible, every time we pray and sing together, it's building these connections that are constantly changing and adapting and adjusting. So every interaction that we have in this space is significant. Every interaction is helping make some of those connections for our kids. Um, in uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that we as, as adults, as mature believers um, in our faith, uh, we plant the seeds for a person's early understanding of faith. And then we get to water the plant, and then God comes and grows that um, plant, grows their faith. So our mission to kids is we plant the seeds, we get to plant the seeds, we get to water the plants in this little hour and a half time, once a week alongside their parents, who are, of course, the most important teachers. And then we get to pray that God will grow that into faith and to belief in Jesus. So since uh, some of you haven't been in the room, I want to acknowledge that a lot of you have. A lot of you are already serving in the room. Um, but those that you haven't, uh, our goal in our children's room is to share God's love to our kids and for them to understand that church is a place where they are safe, known, and loved. And we do that by how we teach them, how we set up their room, how we talk to them, how we welcome them. Um, all of those things are important, helping them feel safe, known, and loved at church. And um, we want them to want to come to church. We want them to enjoy it. We want them to love learning about God. We want them to love being in their community, in their room. So we do a lesson time where we read to them and we sing songs. You don't have to be a good singer. And um, we're learning how to pray together, which is like an adventure every Sunday. You just never know um, what's going to be prayed about each week. Um, and then uh, of equal importance for kids, we spend a lot of time playing. Um, so kids learn best through play. So we know we can talk about these important things and read these wonderful books, but then they might get more from playing with the train um, with Ben after um, than the whole book because you're listening and you're talking and they're processing. So we're not really looking for expert teachers necessarily. What we're looking for are people who can sit with our kids when they're having a bad day and listen to them and make Play-Doh snakes and build towers and um, loving them and uh, you know, be in community with them. So uh, if you look around the room, we have some four and five-year-olds in this room, and that's because we need a few more people to be able to make a room just for them. We have a toddler room for one to three-year-olds, but we don't have a spot for our preschoolers. So if we had two more people sign up, and I know some of you already signed up and we haven't called you yet because we're two people short. If we have two more people, then everyone who signed up can volunteer and we can have a room for our preschoolers, or they can have a space designed for them, with books for them, with art and crafts and toys they can play with. And um, we would really love for you to prayerfully consider that so we can start their room and they can have a space so um, they can be themselves and they can play. Um, that is all I had. Uh, if you have questions about serving, it's a once a month commitment, one time a month, and there's a short virtual trainings to get started. So um, feel free to ask me uh, or ask Ben or ask anyone in here and we'll get you set up on serving in the kids' room. Thank you. Hi, guys. Is this on? Is this on? Is it on? Is it on? Oh, there it goes. Okay. Um, okay. 
All right. So uh, when I was 22, my first job out of college was at a place uh, that served both refugees and asylum seekers. And those are people who have fled from persecution um, on the basis of their race, religion, nationality, or membership of a particular social or political group. So these are people who were fighting for democracy in Zimbabwe. These are people who were um, journalists fighting against corruption in Iraq. Um, and we quickly uh, saw this difference between refugees and asylum seekers and what was available to them because we found out that whenever a ref whenever an asylum well when a refugee came to America, um, they immediately got their work permit and there was at least a system um, of some help for them. Um, for six to eight months to get on their feet. Asylum seekers, whenever they would get here, um, it often would take over two years before they would get their work permit. And during that gap, they're not eligible for any government services. Um, and so we started meeting these people that were becoming homeless um, and um, not knowing what to do or where they should go. Um, and so uh, when Curtis and I were 22, um, we um, started welcoming these people into our home. And as we heard their stories, it started breaking our hearts. And as we got to know them, we became inspired um, by their bravery and realizing how much they were so much um, just like us and our desires. Um, and so our hands became more and more full of, and, of, and our lives became more and more full of these amazing people. Um, and then when I was 25, um, God sent this woman who, um, he gave a prophetic word for me, and I never. This woman had never met me, um, and she said, um, "I see your home like this orphanage for people from all over the world, where people come not just to be uh, physically, but also spiritually nurtured." And she said, "God wants you to start an organization for people seeking asylum, and it will succeed not because of you, but because God loves these people, um, and because He will make it." Um, so that's what it took for me to say yes to being all in for serving asylum seekers. And we started doing that. Uh, we actually went to the church. It then, before City Church, it was the Rooted Church, um, and said, hey, can we start an organization? And um, they were like, yeah, go for it. So we started with, like, nothing. And now, um, all, all these years later, um, Dash Network has served um, about 200 asylum seekers for the full duration um, of their work permit wait. Um, we have five people on staff. Three of the five were asylum seekers themselves. Um, and it has been such a privilege to be a part of. We do housing through host homes um, as well as apartments. Curtis and I have gotten to host about 20 people um, in our home. Um, uh, Miriam was one of the first hosts that we have. Ross and Diane, they help set up apartments for the ones living in apartments. Um, we do um, food through food banks and food volunteers for asylum seekers. We do um, uh, we do uh, like education. Marvin's in charge of the uh, Thrive Academy, which does education. We do ESL programs, um, friendship through mentor programs. Many people from City Church have been mentors. Um, it's truly just been such a privilege uh, to be a part of. We're looking for volunteers in all these areas. So if you're interested, um, let me know. Um, and right now, some of our biggest needs are we're looking to hire a director of, like, resident development to care for, like, spiritual, emotional needs of asylum seekers. So if you know someone who'd be a good fit for that. Um, also, we are ready to build. We actually have been working toward a down payment. We've got a $200,000 down payment that we're ready to purchase land and build a building. Um, so if you know of a good spot 
um, or you work with a builder, we are ready for that and in that process. So talk, come talk to me. Um, and, um, you know, just to kind of wrap us up, um, the word hospitality in the Bible is philozenia or philos exos. It's the love of the exile, the love of the other. Hospitality sometimes gets painted like inviting your friends that look like you, think like you, um, speak like you over for a nice dinner that you've, you know, all to have it all tidied up. Um, it's actually inviting in the other, loving the other like a brother. Um, it is completely not a lot of times what we think of as hospitality. Um, and when we do that, um, whether it's through neighbors or whether it is through refugees, through asylum seekers, through people who are very different from us, and we create that welcome and that love, um, as um, Anne Voskamp, um, she says, why build higher walls when we can set out more plates? And when we do that, um, we are showing the world that we actually live for a different kingdom. Um, and when we do that, time after time, we've seen people changed by that better king. So do hospitality, the real one. I thought it was so great to be reminded of the big picture through the truest story this summer. Because when you understand that the 66 books of the Bible are really about one thing, it changes the way you see everything. And then you go, why did I never see this before? <laughs> um, and the same thing is true about understanding God's heart for the nations. Um, you know, Ben mentioned Matthew 28, that's seen as the big missions passage, but that's totally not the first time God's heart for the world is seen. Um, God has always wanted his people to be about displaying and declaring his glory to the nations. And in Genesis 12, God told Abraham to leave his country and his people and go to the land he would show him. That sounds like mission right there, doesn't it? Leave and go. He said he would make Abram into a great nation and bless him. God said, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And when God changes Abram's name to Abraham, he says, I have made you a father of many nations. So I think Abraham understood that God wasn't just blessing him, but he was blessing him so that he would be a blessing, not only to the Israelites, but to all the nations. Psalm 67 says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, that your ways may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. And in Isaiah 49, 6, God says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. I love that so much because it's clear that it's not an either this or that kind of thing but it's a both and. It is too small a thing to be concerned only about the people right around us. Why? Because God is a big God, and he loves all the wonderful people groups that he has created. So we see that some people in the Bible got it, and others not so much. Like Jonah, um, who God said, go to Nineveh, and Jonah, we all know, said, no. He ran the other way. He said, they're pagans. 
Gentiles, not Jews, and they don't deserve your mercy. And God basically said, that's right, neither do you, now go. <laughs> and we all know how that turned out. A big fish swallowed him up and delivered him to Nineveh. And when the people heard Jonah's message, they repented and turned to the Lord. So Scott and I also didn't understand God's um, heart for the world at all. We weren't raised in Christian homes. Uh, we both came to know the Lord our freshman year in college, and we got involved in crew, which was great. They emphasized uh, sharing your faith and going on missions trips. And while in college, our church had a missions conference um, about Muslims, and we heard that there was one missionary for every million Muslims. And that shocked us so much. We just said, that is wrong. Maybe we should go. So we started to think about that. Um, after we got married, we were part of a Sunday school class about God's heart for the world. Most believers know, which Ben also mentioned, Revelation 7, 9, which says there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne. And so there we go again with the idea of people groups, not uh, political nations. Um, some people could be cut off from the gospel because of their location. They're on a remote island or because of language or because they're enemies with the people near them who may know the Lord. Um, but based on this verse, we can have complete confidence that every people group will be reached. But in order for that to become a reality, something needs to happen. In Romans 10, Paul says, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? So sending people out is as much a part of the church's jobs as being witnesses locally. Um, so in 1994, our local church sent us to Kazakhstan to bring the good news to people who had just watched the Soviet Union crumble before their very eyes. Um, they knew they had been lied to, and they wondered what the truth really was. Under communism, all churches were shut down. And also the Kazakhs were traditionally Muslim, so they were doubly closed off to the gospel. But in the 90s, God was at move, and there was incredible openness to spiritual things. We joined a church plant when we first arrived, um, and that church grew from about 150 people to 300 in that first year. It was made up of not only Russians and Kazakhs, but a lot of other people groups you may never have heard of, like Uyghurs, Kyrgyz, Uzbeks, Karakalpak, and others. Um, and throughout history, these people did not get along, but as part of the body of Christ, they loved each other. And it was so beautiful to see. The next year, we um, and another couple started a church right in our neighborhood. We saw that group grow from about 15 to over 100 very quickly. Um, and uh, it had, it was also many different people groups, but one language, Russian. Uh, but we had seen openness among the Kazakhs who had come from the village to the city, either for work or for school. Um, their heart language was Kazakh and not Russian, and they wanted to read the word and worship the Lord in their own heart language. So we and a few teammates started a group for these Kazakhs, Kazakhs which became its own church. And by God's grace, all of these churches are still gathering today. We haven't been in Fort Worth long, but God has already brought um, some precious friends into our lives who also have a heart for the nations. We thought, well, we do know one or two things about that, and we have certainly made a lot of mistakes that we can maybe help others avoid. So last week, we got together for the first time to have dinner and a little discussion, and our plan is to get together several times over the fall and talk about things that are important to think about when you're working with other cultures. 
it's just been so encouraging to see God bring together one of our passions that overlaps with the need of local believers who want to bring the story of the glory of God to the nations. So God might want, to, want you to consider going. You never know. But even if we stay, he invites us to be a part of his plan to bring salvation to the ends of the earth by sending others. We could never have gone to Kazakhstan and stayed there for 15 years without the love and support of our home church and many individuals who cared about us and the Kazakhs. So I'm excited to see how God will use salt and light in the same way over the years to come. All right. And I'm committed to wrapping us up quickly, knowing that there's little hungry mouths and also your kids. Um, so you have one kind of application question to ask, prayer to pray. We're going to send you out with, with one thing, and, and that is to, to ask God and have a discussion with family or community or household or whoever that looks like. Um, just ask God what he's inviting you into. Um, but perhaps maybe, maybe it is already saying, Hey, I realize the role that I'm playing. Perhaps you're like one of these folks and are already giving yourself. And, and if that's the case, then just, just praise God that you get to be part of his work continuing. You're, you're part of a pain at forward that he's been doing for thousands and thousands of years. Um, maybe just simply thank God for ways he's already given you to serve and pray for his leading and wisdom as you continue to pursue his mission and pray for open doors and pray for opportunities. Um, maybe God's asking you to join one of these that was shared and we'll send some contact information if that's the case. And maybe he's opened your eyes to a different need in your own neighborhood or network or passion or that kind of stuff. But, but again, regardless, the one question is how's God inviting us to respond? How's God inviting you, uh, as an individual, perhaps a household to respond, to go back to Psalm 33, I want to read in verse 18, God says, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Again, that's, that's talking about us. That's talking about those of us who know God, um, who know he, him as our Savior. We'll come to that in just one sec. Um, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who do fear him, on, who, on those in, who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. And for, for some of us, perhaps the idea of God watching us, his eye being on us is is an ominous thing. Um, maybe there's good reason for that. Throughout history, God's folks have not done a great job of obeying him or fulfilling their role well. But I think what this verse is teaching us is that God watches us based on everything else the psalm taught us. He watches people because he loves us and cares for us. Um, he, he, he loves his people who do fear him and obey him and do rightly define salvation. And, and he watches, according to this verse, mainly so that he can deliver our souls from death into life. And, and we get to look back. The psalmist was, was writing before Jesus came, but we get to look back and know that the full deliverance from death to life, the fulfillment of years of hope, happened about a thousand years after the psalm was written in the, in the arrival and life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And so grab your communion cups if you don't have them. Um, and we're going to read together the last verses of this psalm. Because um, again, the psalm, the psalmist was waiting for the Lord, was hoping for the Messiah. Uh, we know that there's a better king than this broken world has to offer. And we know that this Messiah has a name and his name is Jesus. And so the deliverance the psalm is referencing was fully accomplished through the broken body of Jesus. So take the, take the bread wafer thing 
And remember that this deliverance was fully accomplished through the broken body of Jesus, who is the one right source of hope for the hurting world, and who is the one who saves souls from death by taking on all sin and brokenness. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, our heart can be glad in the Lord. So let's read this together as Lydia puts it on the screen. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust his holy name. Take and eat. And that long-awaited Messiah, Jesus' blood was shed in order to both cover us and forgive our sins and also to remind us that, that his blood is now spiritually what runs through our DNA. It's, it's running through our veins. His spirit is empowering us to live out this role, to display and declare the good news. So let's read verse 22. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Take and drink. Father God, our soul does wait for you. Would you be our help and our shield? Would you help us be glad in you and trust your name as the psalmist invites us to? We do pray for your steadfast love to be upon us as we hope in you and as we lay down our lives to share that hope with people around us. Would you help us live out our role in your truest story? Would you work in us and through us for your glory, your gospel, your kingdom today and every day? And we all say together,